Chapter Four of The Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. The Pot Hunters by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter Four Certain Revelations. During the last hour of morning school, Tony got a note from Jim. Graham, said Mr. Thompson, the master of the sixth, sadly, just as Tony was about to open it, yes, sir? Kindly tear up that note, Graham. Note, sir? Kindly tear that note up, Graham. Come, you are keeping us waiting. As the hero of the novel says, further concealment was useless. Tony tore the note up, unread. Hope it didn't want an answer, he said to Jim after school. Constant practice has made Thompson a sort of amateur lynx. Now, it was only to ask you to be in the study directly after lunch. There's a most unholy row going to occur shortly, as far as I can see. What, about this burglary business? Yes, haven't time to tell you now. See you after lunch. After lunch, having closed the study door, Jim embarked on the following statement. It appeared that on the previous night he had left a book of notes which were of absolutely vital importance for the examination which the sixth had been doing in the earlier part of the morning, in the identical room in which the prizes had been placed, or rather he had left it there several days before and had not needed it till that night. At half-past six the pavilion had been locked up, and Biffin, the ground man, had taken the key away with him and it was only after tea had been consumed and the evening paper read that Jim, thinking it about time to begin work, had discovered his loss. This was about half-past seven. Being a house prefect, Jim did not attend the preparation in the great hall with a common herd of the houses, but was part owner with Tony of a study. The difficulties of the situation soon presented themselves to him. It was only possible to obtain the notes in three ways. Firstly, by going to the rooms of the sixth-form master, who lived out of college. Secondly, by borrowing from one of the other sixth-form members of the house. And thirdly, by the desperate expedient of burgling the pavilion. The objections to the first course were two. In the first place, Merivale was taking prep, over in the hall. And it was strictly forbidden for anyone to quit the house after lock-up without leave, and, besides, it was long odds that Thompson, the sixth-form master, would not have the notes, as he had dictated them partly out of his head and partly from the works of various eminent scholars. The second course was out of question. The only other sixth-form boy in the house, Tony and Welch being away at Aldershot, was Charteris, and Charteris, who never worked much except the night before an exam, but worked there under forced draught, was appalled at the mere suggestion of letting his notebook out of his hands. Jim had sounded him on the subject and had met with the reply, Kill my father and burn my ancestral home, and I will look on and smile. But touch these notes, and you rouse the British lion. After which he had given up the borrowing idea. There remained the third course, and there was an excitement and sporting interest about it that took him immensely but how was he going to get out to start with? He opened his study window and calculated the risks of a drop to the ground. No, it was too far, not worth risking a sprained ankle on the eve of the mile. Then he thought of the matron's sitting-room. 
Hmm. This was on the ground floor, and if its owner happened to be out, exit would be easy. As luck would have it, she was out, and in another minute Jim had crossed the Rubicon and was standing on the gravel drive which led to the front gate. A sharp sprint took him to the pavilion. Now the difficulty was not how to get out, but how to get in. Theoretically it should have been the easiest of tasks, but in practice there were plenty of obstacles to success. He tried the lower windows, but they were firmly fixed. There had been a time when one of them would yield to a hard kick and fly bodily out of its frame. But somebody had been caught playing that game not long before, and Jim remembered with a pang that not only had the window been securely fastened up, but the culprit had had a spell of extra tuition and other punishments which had turned him for the time into a hater of his species. His own fate, he knew, would be even worse, for a prefect is supposed to have something better to do in his spare time than breaking into pavilions. It would mean expulsion, perhaps, or, at the least, the loss of his prefect's cap, and Jim did not want to lose that. Still, the thing had to be done if he meant to score any marks at all on the forthcoming exam. He wavered a while between a choice of methods, and finally fixed on the crudest of all. No one was likely to be within earshot, thought he, so he picked up the largest stone he could find, took as careful aim as the dim light would allow, and hove it. There was a sickening crash, loud enough, he thought, to bring the whole school down upon him, followed by a prolonged rattle as the broken pieces of glass fell to the ground. He held his breath and listened. For a moment all was still, uncannily still. He could hear the tops of the trees groaning in the slight breeze that had sprung up, and far away the distant roar of a train. Then a queer thing happened he heard a quiet thud, as if somebody had jumped from a height onto the grass, and then quick footsteps. He waited breathless and rigid, expecting every moment to see a form loom up beside him in the darkness. It was useless to run. His only chance was to stay perfectly quiet. Then it dawned upon him that the man was running away from him, not towards him. His first impulse was to give chase, but prudence restrained him. Catching burglars is an exhilarating sport, but it is best to indulge in it when one is not on a burgling expedition oneself. Besides, he had come out to get his book, and business is business. There was no time to be lost now, for someone might have heard one or both of the noises and given the alarm. Once the window was broken, the rest was fairly easy, the only danger being the pieces of glass. He took off his coat and flung it on the sill of the upper window. In a few seconds he was up himself without injury. He found it a trifle hard to keep his balance, as there was nothing to hold on to, but he managed it long enough to enable him to thrust an arm through the gap and turn the handle. After this there was a bolt to draw, which he managed without difficulty. The window swung open, Jim jumped in, and groped his way around the room till he found his book. The other window of the room was wide open. He shut it for no definite reason, and noticed that a pane had been cut out entire. The professional cracksman had done his work more neatly than the amateur. <laughs> Poor chap, thought Jim, with a chuckle, as he effected a retreat. I must have given him a bit of a start with my half-brick. After bolting the window behind him, he climbed down. 
as he reached earth again the clock struck a quarter to nine in another quarter of an hour prep would be over and the house door unlocked and he would be able to get in again nor would the fact of his being out excite remark for it was the custom of the house prefects to take the air for the few minutes which elapsed between the opening of the door and the final locking up for the night the rest of his adventure ran too smoothly to require a detailed description everything succeeded excellently the only reminiscences of his escapade were a few cuts in his coat which went unnoticed and the precious book of notes to which he applied himself with such vigor in the watches of the night with a surreptitious candle and a hamper of apples as aids to study that though tired the next day he managed to do quite well enough on the exam to pass muster and as he had never had the least prospect of coming out top or even in the first five this satisfied him completely tony listened with breathless interest to jim's recital of his adventures and at the conclusion laughed <laughs> what a mad thing to go and do he said jolly sporting though jim did not join in his laughter yes but don't you see he said ruefully what a mess i'm in if they find out that i was in the pav at the time when the cups were bagged how on earth am i going to prove i didn't take them myself by jove i never thought of that but hang it all they'd never dream of accusing a cold chap of stealing sports prizes this isn't a reformatory for juvenile hooligans no perhaps not of course not well even if he didn't the old man would be frightfully sick if he got to know about it i'd lose my prefect's cap for cert you might certainly i should there wouldn't be any question about it why don't you remember that business last summer about cairns he used to stay out after lock-up that was absolutely all he did well the old end dropped on him like a hundredweight of bricks multiply that by about ten and you get what he'll do to me if he books me over this job tony looked thoughtful the case of cairns versus the powers that were was too recent to have escaped his memory even now cairns was to be seen on the grounds with a common schoolhouse cap on the back of his head in place of the prefect's cap which had once adorned it yes he said you'd lose your cap all right i'm afraid rather and the sickening part of the business is that this real copper-bottomed burglary will make them hunt about all over the shop for clues and things and the odds are they'll find me out even if they don't book the real man shouldn't wonder if they had a detective down for a big thing of this sort they are having one i heard there you are then said jim dejectedly i'm done you see i don't know i don't believe detectives are much class anyhow he'll probably have gumption enough to spot me jim's respect for the abilities of our national sleuth-hounds was greater than tony's and a good deal greater than that of most people End of chapter four